0: frost and you're listening to the fully Scored podcast a monthly podcast that looks into the meaning message and history of salvation army music by interviewing its notable composers conductors and musicians on today's episode episode 30 we welcome back friend of the podcast dr howard evans who's going to be exploring the oldest piece of repertoire we've featured an analysis of so far Published in 1930, Howard will be talking us through the early Eric Ball air very, the old wells. This will be the first of a two-part analysis. Also in this episode, we'll be hearing from the legendary Trevor Davis. It was a real pleasure for me to sit down and talk with Trevor last month about his life, faith and music making. Here we are speaking from Trevor's current core, Leicester South. Well, we're here at Leicester South, the Salvation Army, on a moderately cloudy day, and I'm privileged to be joined by Trevor Davis. How are you keeping?
1: Oh, pretty well, on the whole. Thank you, Matthew. Excellent. I'm not gonna, I won't give you a medical breakdown. That. <laughs> <laughs> That's OK.
0: Well, thank you ever so much for giving up your time to speak to us today. Really looking forward to uh, learning a bit more about your life and your music and your faith.
1: OK, we'll try.
0: You ready to begin? Ready. <laughs> Excellent stuff. So we'll start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us about your first experiences with the Salvation Army?
1: Yes, they, um, they started uh, from birth. In fact, the officer who dedicated me um, constantly through my life reminded me that he saw me almost before uh, my parents did, and <laughs> um, they were Salvationists, both of them. I was born in the war, uh, Second World War, and uh, my father was still an active soldier away from home, so somewhere in the middle of all this I emerged. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: And did your first contact with music begin at that time also from an early
1: age? Yeah, it started with with a number of things. Um, I was prone as a child just to go and sort of sit at the piano that was in our, as we called it, the front room. And um, our next door neighbour was a retired piano teacher, and she offered to give me lessons when I was about seven, which was about the age that I'd started learning to play brass for the YP band, cornet, and um, so cornet and piano started together. Um, my piano teacher uh, eventually encouraged me to take um, proper lessons from a, a current teacher, do some exams, and eventually I, I went as part-time uh, piano student at Trinity um, when I was in my, I guess, mid-teens. And if I could just throw in, of course, to that the influence of music schools, which from when I was 12 was uh, a very large part of life. Thanks.
0: Did you have a favourite uh,
1: discipline to play, piano or brass? I would always evade that as, um, as a youngster. But the one that I pursued more um, was the piano. <laughs> Especially when I realised that I'd got some kind of gift towards improvisation. And <laughs> I guess guess it's the thing that I now regret the most because as we get older <laughs> it fired us a bit. <laughs> so
0: oh, thank you for that. So for much of your life you served as a Salvation Army officer, um, a full-time minister for those not familiar with Salvation Army terminology. When did you realise that you had a calling to go into officership and was that clear to you?
1: That's a very difficult question to answer because the call of Christ comes to people in so many different ways. And I have to be truthful and can't say there was a moment when at youth councils I knew that this was got to be um, no Damascus Road moment of calling, no by the Sea of Galilee follow me moment, but rather as a very keen and enthusiastic and believing salvationist and Gathering a realization at the same time that I had some leadership qualities. Um, I just felt that if this is so important in life and you can bring some of those skills to leadership in the Salvation Army, then get on with it. And I, I don't think that's any the less sacred a call than um, any other way. But that's the way it was, and for a number of years, uh, when mobile phones (laughs) became the thing, my opening screen simply said, inevitability, and I think that was it. It was inevitable that I would be anything but an army officer.
0: What was your first appointment like in those first (laughs) initial years in officership?
1: Oh, well, I went into the East London Division. It was largely, uh, I think, um, compassionate to move into one of the London divisions because my wife-to-be was still a cadet at the training college. Margaret was still there. So um, I went to Limehouse House Corps, which was at the time the, the second oldest existing corps. Uh, second to popular I think and um, we had a few appointments there ranging from um, huge uh, social housing estates at Dagenham to country villages like Wakering and um, yeah it was it was colourful it was, the East End is just colourful and um, it was a great privilege it's a bit of a shock when Uh, we suddenly got moved to Middlesbrough, to a place called Thornaby, um, towards the end of our fourth or fifth year in that division. Excellent.
0: And after those core appointments, uh, you were appointed as National Bandmaster uh, under the direction of Leslie Condon, uh, who was National Secretary for Band and Songsters at the time. Was that a surprise to you being called up for National Bandmaster or was that maybe something that you had an inkling about? I,
1: I had never had a thought in my mind. Uh, I, either that the army would pull me into that kind of appointment or uh, that I had any of the gifts that were needed for it. I was of the mind that I would be always a court officer, that was it. But I, I slipped in the fact that we moved to Thornby because uh, as we moved to Thornby in the November it was only about three months later that my divisional commander called me in and told me that we were to move again and that I was to return to what was then national headquarters. And I remember protesting, I'm not going to go back there, adding up rows of figures and doing all sorts of stuff, which was my picture then of National Headquarters. So what were those years like as
0: National Bandmaster? I can imagine pretty hectic. They were hectic.
1: They were, they were very interesting um, The tradition of the National Bowmaster's job had been, I think it's fair to say, re-established with Dean Goffin, who of course I remember from our music school days as the National Bowmaster, and um, he was followed by um, Norman Bearcroft and then Leslie Condon, and for me to be moving into this sort of orbit was was a very very strange feeling. Um, It was busy. The format tended to be that my job was twofold. One was to mark the band training correspondence course, which at that time, in 1972-3, was, was still seeing probably 200 students each year, either on the intermediate or advanced level. So my home job was to, um, to mark those and manage that course. Um, with the secretary helping. Um, the away job was to go off for 10 days at a time, spend the evening with a Salvation Army band in rehearsal, lead a spiritual meeting, and then the next morning go off, perhaps visit some bandsman of that corps who was sick, move on to do insurance valuations of instruments. And so you're, you're travelling all the time. Um, and um, whilst it was a delight in some ways as an opportunity, it was quite challenging for a 27, 28 year old with um, two small children at home um, to, you know, sort of put that all together. So, thank you for that fascinating mm. insight.
0: So, you mentioned working with Leslie Condon, of oh, course, yeah. an iconic name in Salvation Army.
1: Yeah. What was it like working with Les? Oh, it was interesting. Uh, I, I remember Joy who uh, worked in the next office to me and we were in the same department. She used to say to me sometimes, I can't get it into my head that Les, with his mind, is sitting through that wall. And it was a bit like that. He was very determined, he was very committed, uh, sometimes I think, well, I thought that, that perhaps he'd not learnt the word no, he would say yes to everybody, everything, and people absolutely loved him. His preaching was uh, challenging, and of course sharing with him in leadership of councils, um, Bannet solst councils, which were very much the order of the day, um, was a great privilege learned so much from
0: Les. And perhaps it was also sort of, throughout these years you also worked closely with Norman Bearcroft.
1: Yes, well, I had a little stint as the Corps officer, of Car Citadel in the middle, and by the end of that time, Les had moved on, Norman had come back from Canada, and um, there was a, a 1978 Congress coming up, Um, and he needed a national webmaster. somehow he managed to arrange my reappointment to this job and told us after he'd done it and um, so the first year or so of working with with Norman was preparing uh, I think the the history records 80,000 sheets of manuscript paper organising a thousand songsters in four venues from all over the country and rehearsing them. So that was the first 18 months of that, and then slipped back into the more usual pastoral, probably just a little bit more relaxed. Um, Working with Norman, again, I learnt so much. Again, his platform was fascinating, completely different from Les. Norman... Hilarious, known to be a very funny man and lovely to work with but I could tell you also a very compassionate person
0: Another big change in your life uh, was when you were sent pretty much as far from home as you could be um, and moved to serve in New Zealand as a music secretary out there Again, was this a complete surprise to you?
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, one morning, I went into the T.H.Q. and the Chief Secretary of the day uh, accosted me on the stairs, said, "I need to talk to you urgently," and I went into his office and he said, "If there is any reason why you should not take an overseas appointment, uh, could you let us know within the next hour?" And my first reaction was to gulp. The second was to say, what and where are you talking about? New Zealand could be your home in seven weeks. And in the next hour, I had to go down the stairs, phone Margaret, what do you think about this, dear? <laughs> and uh, we immediately said, if that's where we're appointed, we should go. And, um, yes, a bit of a shock, Matthew.
0: Absolutely, what faith, just to pick up your things and move to the other side of the world, let alone the other side of the country. And uh, what was the music scene in the Salvation Army like in comparison to what it was in the UK at that time? It was very
1: healthy, um, bearing in mind by this time Dean Goffin was the territorial commander. Um, so I'd seen him from my was 16s when I'm now nearly 40 and he's about to um, retire in a year or two's time. Um, the make-up, the, the impact that he'd made on the music scene in the UK, he had, had so much to do within New Zealand as well. And I think part of our being there was that it was coming up to the 1983 Centenary Congress and Dean wanted somebody there to get, you know, and the lot fell on on Jonah. Um, Traditional in many ways from the music angle, good bands, um, probably most core had a band. There would have been not as many huge bands perhaps, but out of a hundred core I guess there would have been 20 sizeable bands and another 2013 others, um, the Wellington City Band, the Newton Band, fantastic. Good songster brigades, and in fact, I took on the leadership of Wellington City Songsters for two or three years while we were there, That seemed seemed to work all right in that territory to um, have a national music secretary running the core songster <laughs> brigade. I liked him. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: And uh, Dean Goffin, again, another name that people of my generation only know as a name on the top right-hand corner of a piece of paper. What was it like working with Dean?
1: Fascinating. Um, he was my hero from boyhood. He was, he was the one that made a lot of impact on, on my young life. So so I started uh, with an advantage, but but I did learn that Dean would express himself uh, as strongly to people he knew and liked as anybody else. And he was a a strong territorial leader. The sort of guy who I would stand up for any time, uh, out of pure respect. He was knighted that year in New Zealand. And um, from, from the sort of centenary tribute angle. And um, he actually became the first Salvation Army officer to preach at the um, dedication service at the opening of Parliament in New Zealand. And he didn't put any punches in what he said. <laughs> in that he, was, he was so strong, so convicted in his way. Um, I, I loved it. I loved it. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much.
0: Many Salvationists will be aware that uh, every now and again there's a new songbook released, <laughs> uh, the most recent being in 2015, and I'm sure it doesn't need me to point out the monumental amount of work that goes behind the scenes to put these together. I understand that you were pretty instrumental in putting the 1986 songbook together.
1: Well, yes and no. I came back from New Zealand, appointed to the music editorial. On pretty well my first week back, Colonel Ray Bowes called me into his office and said, now I know you're not here. We've got a little job going on with this, this renewal of the tune book um, and it's, it's dragging on too long. And so so what I want to do is to say, your first few months here, finish it off, will you? Well, that was a a misnomer. There were two or three of us involved there. And it took nearly three years to finish that off. And in the end, Colonel reinsteadman Allen, who was coming up to retirement, uh, was brought in. As well for the last year. So I had the joy of working with Wright at that time on the final throes of the uh, 86 tune book. Um, So,
0: yeah. And what were your sort of responsibilities during that project?
1: Uh, As it happened, I intended to keep the register of where everything was because it is an enormous problem on a tomb Book revision, knowing exactly where stuff is at any time. So, um, you know, felt-tip colour pens came in very handy in those days, um, which were pre-computer days. And um, uh, then we would be checking proofs, amending proofs, and for some reason that tune, tune Book, I think, was printed in Korea. And so we were sending parcels of manuscript paper to Korea and back, which is why it took rather a long time to um, to accomplish an interesting experience, and great to have been involved with it and I, I always kept saying to myself, "Every call." in the Western world certainly is going to be using what I'm doing today in its worship for the next 30 years. And that was the thing that kept me head down.
0: So after your initial working in the editorial department, and we'll come back to the return in a little bit, you went into core officership again.
1: We constantly um, were making it known to our leaders all the way through our officership that at any time they wanted to send us back to a court appointment, we would be ready, packed and on our way. Um, and that happened after our stint in the uh, editorial department. My wife was working at territorial headquarters in another department. And so we welcomed the chance to go back to working together. And, and Sains, um was the place we would send.
0: Great. So as I mentioned, uh that time in Music Editorial before, going back to corps after ship wasn't the end and you returned in 1992 to 1994 as the head of Music Editorial. And uh, to complete the set perhaps of music roles, certainly within the UK Salvation Army, uh, you were appointed as the Territorial Music Secretary. How did that role differ from your previous music roles?
1: When I first went into the, what we always called the Bands Department, I suppose strictly it was the Bands and the songs to Brigade's Department, that was part of our national headquarters. Music editorial has nothing to do with the territory, it was an international headquarters department under the management of SB&S on behalf of IHQ. Now, At the time that that I'd become Head of Editorial, both Norman Bearcroft in the Banks Department and Ray Bowes in the Editorial Department had both uh, either moved or, or retired. Retired, I guess, at that time. And Robert Redhead had come in as the Territorial Music Secretary. And I'd been brought in as the head of music editorial. At the same time, Len Valentine came as the assistant music secretary. And um, so, when Robert, two years later, went back to Canada by appointment, um, I was moved along to be the territorial music secretary. Len stayed as the assistant. By this time, Steve Cobb was the territorial bandmaster. And um, Richard Phillips became the head of editorial. And so within that grouping and, and the whole staff, um, it was just slightly a new birth, and we had to bring all those things together. And that was the right thing to do at that time, and although I understand things have slightly separated since, um well, I don't know anything about
0: fair enough and what were some of the other roles and responsibilities that you held as territorial music secretary
1: Um, mainly it was the organisation of events management theoretically sorting out certain regulatory issues Uh, I considered it my job to be not sitting at my desk in headquarters but to be out around the country very much in the way that it's national band type learned to do, but often with a slightly different emphasis, leadership of councils. And at that time, the staff sections, which had been part of international headquarters, came under the jurisdiction of territorial headquarters. And um, at the time that uh, Stephen became a staff master. I was uh, appointed to the executive office at Stuffbank to work alongside Stephen, which was a great, great pleasure. Yeah. Brilliant stuff.
0: Of course, no interview with yourself would be complete without talking a bit about your compositions. When did you first get the bug for composing?
1: Yeah, where did it start? Um, there and beyond... Odd occasions, uh, a song for this. Uh, my wife had to lead the homely singers in one of our quart where we were stuck, and she's not. For goodness' sake, write me a song that we do for our came with Ken Williams. So that's where, where I love to be came from, you know. And um, I'd not written for brass, actually, until I was national national bandmaster. And the Bedlington Band asked me to write them a march. And I started then to write a, a, a little bit more. Um, in New Zealand, I was great friends with the West Wellington City Band and having the facility of your own band to just... I wasn't the bandmaster, but the bandmaster, Eric Geddes, was a wonderful man. God, give us it. Come on, Trevor. Feed us. us. So that was the way a lot of it, and eventually some of that got published when he came back. I've never written what I would consider an epic, Um, and used to talk with Ken Downey about this quite a bit, because... You know, I I envy all that. But I think I recognise that if I had a gift at all, it was to to write accessible music. Um, Sometimes for a smaller band, a lot of Triumph series, Unity series, a bit of General series, and a few few Festival series, yeah, okay. But um, hopefully functional. But I wish I could have written. Uh, a good melody.
0: (laughs) It's interesting you say that, because actually I would say that many people, whether they know it or not, would know your melodies well, and your words as well, such as Where I Am, Where I Love To Be, Enjoy Because Of You. So when you're writing a melody,
1: what sort of things do you consider? (laughs) Well, you're picking picking out some of the exceptions. (laughs) Where I Am... um... It's very interesting because that was, uh, again, Colonel Ray Bowes, who asked me to write a song for Monday morning. (laughs) You know, it it happened that way in the editorial. This was Friday afternoon. I want want a front page for new songs for young people, and I want it Monday morning. And I said to Ray, I'm in Carlisle for the weekend specialing. He said, that is your problem. And so on a train somewhere up the uh, west coast, (laughs) where I am was born. And it was only then when I was with the staff band that David Dawes said, God, Trevor, can can you write something for me on where I am? and I was surprised to find that published in a festival series <laughs> I thought it was a little devotional thing but David said it was more difficult than that so um, yeah that's the way what do you do how do you write a song Joy Because Of You came, I was in New Zealand and I had a uh, a letter from Miriam Yendel, who was still conducting the girls that um, I suppose, or whatever the subsequent venue was, could you do a song for the girls? And I spoke to a lovely, lovely officer on THQ in Wellington and said, Barbara, you write wonderful prose, um, and I think you've got poetry in you, couldn't you give me some words for a song? And she gave me the words. They were on my desk the next morning.
0: So, of course, Joy, because of you, also ended up in a very famous cornet solo, Jubilance. Did you know that uh, Bill Hines had used it?
1: No, I didn't until um, until I heard it the first time. And um, I sit with my wife, I think, in a festival somewhere. And uh, suddenly, uh, I know that tune. And... Um, there it was, and uh, one or two people have said, oh, you should have known before. I didn't worry at all. It was, uh, if, he, if he can do that with my little song, he's welcome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. And my final of the more serious questions, before we go into a few more slightly fun ones and wacky ones, and I know you've touched upon this in all your answers so far, but how has music and music-making throughout all your years, had an impact on your faith?
1: I guess the the answer to that is very difficult to define because um, it's different things at different times. And it's more than just responding to need, personal need, but it's sometimes that as well. There, there are times when perhaps you're worried or anxious, and um, the right kind of music is the right encouragement, balm, if you like. Other times, <laughs> you know full well, you really ought to be getting off your backside and getting on with it. And and some music will be the, the inspiration for that. Um, and then there's there's a whole business of the emotions. Um, if to me music is a language, and uh, just as you can have various translations of scripture, you can have various languages to speak. Um, I, I find it's a music, uh, a language which. Uh, does its own work. And sometimes you don't don't know where it's come from, you don't know where it's taking you. But um, very often in the more reflective moments still, even though my piano playing is not uh, anything like it used to be and it wasn't great then, um, I can still find a great joy in sitting down for half an hour and playing usually simple melodies Easier classical pieces. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for those
0: poignant words, indeed. So, this brings us on to the uh, next segment of the interview, the quirky quickfire questions. Oh, wow. So, some of these are fairly standard and uh, I've used in other interviews, but some of these I like to be pretty wacky that you've probably never been asked before, or again... (laughs) So, first of all, have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer?
1: Um, Am I allowed a few? Go for it. Dean, Les, Eric Ball.
0: Great, well, if you think that was a difficult question,
1: uh, even more specific,
0: have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece? Uh,
1: I have to be true to what I've said all my life, yes. Wilfred Heaton, just as I am. Thank you. If you had a magical biscuit tin that
0: always contained your favourite biscuit, no matter when you opened it, if you were to open it right now, what biscuit would be in it? Bourbon. Bourbon, excellent. Good choice. Have you ever dabbled in Semaphore? No. No? Uh, If you could step through a magical door and end up somewhere else in the world, where would it be?
1: Would I be able to come back again?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: Then I would like, I've always said, I would like to take my life to Cape Town, where I was privileged to visit once, but she wasn't with me. I should say I was with the Salvation Army Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Fantastic. That's
0: a great answer. Have you got a favourite book from the Bible?
1: Philippians, possibly Colossians.
0: Excellent stuff. If you were a barbecue, what would you go for first? Sausage. Excellent. Uh, Can you name a tube stop on the Bakerloo line?
1: Baker Street.
0: Excellent. Uh, Have you got a favourite sport? Football. Football and favourite team? Tottenham Hotspur. Okay, I don't know if that's good or bad, I know nothing (laughs) about football. (laughs) Uh,
1: Have you ever had a nickname? Um, Yes, at music school at one time uh, I was known as Trev the Rev.
0: Excellent, I like it. But maybe we can title this podcast... A <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, final question. What's the most precious artefact you've ever touched?
1: Now, that is difficult. In Salvation Army terms, um, some of our fellow soldiers here, Colonel and Mrs. Brand Booth, and they have... Um, a really significant clock, which gives the accurate, the little plaque on it, gives the accurate dating of the beginning of the Salvation Army, or the Christian mission. And um, he has shared that with us, and assures us that it is precious, so I'll say it is. Um, I probably should have said an ornament we've got at home, but you know, I'll be forgiven.
0: Great stuff. Thank you ever so much. And thank you, Trevor, so much for your time and your words. It's been a real privilege to speak to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor, for your time and your words, for the poignant moments and the laughs. We'll be hearing from Trevor again shortly for Band Mastermind. Now, please welcome Dr Howard Evans back to Fully Scored to speak about The Old Wells by Eric Ball. Thank you very much, Howard, for joining us once again on Fully Scored. I can't believe it, but it's uh, been almost two years since we recorded our analysis in person of the Holy War and your interview, and, uh, well, the world's changed quite a bit since
2: then, hasn't it? I don't think we quite knew what was coming, although things were on the way, um, but I think it was a less than a, or three, four weeks after we'd sat and discussed the Holy War over the dining room table... Um, The world ended up being locked down and we've been living in a very different world since then.
0: So the piece that you've chosen to look at today
2: is Eric Ball's
0: The Old Wells. Why have you chosen this piece to look at in particular?
2: Uh, I think there were a few reasons. Um, Simon obviously sent me the list of works that had been looked at in the intervening period since we did the Holy War and uh, there wasn't a great deal of representation of um, the variation form on there and and in fact, one of the pieces that I used at um, the day that we had for TMS this last summer was in fact, to introduce the old Wells. Most of the students in the band that I had there for that day had never come across the work or played it before, and again, I, I just thought maybe for aspiring composers some of our young writers. I wondered whether maybe it was a really useful piece to look at in terms of the clarity of its structure, its composition and um, and the fact that in its day it was quite a groundbreaking work. We we tend to lose the focus of that with hindsight and and in a way it could look a little bit simplistic for us these days in terms of some of the variation forms... Um, that have been published over recent years and there's some of the complexities of that. And yet, in its day, it was a a very, very uh, different set of variations in terms of the way Eric Ball wrote this and what he actually intended. And I believe you have a personal connection with Eric Ball as well. Uh, Yes, I suppose it's not something that you say too much about, but you could say Eric is family in that... um, Eric was my grandmother's cousin. Um, uh, Where we lived at Leon Sea for uh, many years and and where my parents still live, we actually, when we moved there from Wales, uh, we moved to be next door to my grandmother. And uh, living with my grandmother was my great-grandmother, Esther Ball, who was um, Eric's aunt and was sister to Eric's father, Jack. If you check the Eric Ball um a biography out you'll see the family details in there Uh, my great-grandmother uh was born esther ball and um, because of that there was a a family connection whereby eric would come and uh, and and did come and see uh, my grandmother and um, there was a really lovely story that mary randall told me um it was when she and stan randall used to look after eric when they lived in the bournemouth area when i became the national bandmaster in 1988 uh, I never forget mary telling me this lovely gentle story of eric and mary saying about me being appointed the national bandmaster and eric saying well of course you know he's a relation of mine <laughs> so uh, which was which is incredibly kind of him, but there, there, are, there we, we did meet and, 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 and connected with each other on a number of occasions because of that and the events that he used to come to, coming to Cobham Hall, coming and taking part in events in the bands department even before I went into training. I also, as a cadet, um, my summer out training was at Fordingbridge Corps, and um, I wrote a march for my session and for uh, our a, a sessional band uh, to play called Servants of God. And um, so I did actually take the march, I, I, because I was at Fording Bridge, just north of Bournemouth, I did actually get in touch with Eric and went and spent an afternoon with him and Olive at their place in Milton Road. And he very kindly looked over my very first Salvation Army march for me. And and was very generous, very kind about it. But also, there was uh, the bass solo section that I'd written. He um, he suggested that I needed a slightly more transparent and less thick and heavy um, uh, figures in the upper part to the bass solo section that I'd written. So I duly went back and uh, rescored it and uh, and changed it and kind of had slightly more pyramid structures uh, that worked uh, with this march. Uh, as opposed to the thick structures that I'd got at Eric's suggestion. He was very kind about it, uh, very lovely about it, but he did have some really helpful suggestions in terms of, of, of what I was actually doing. Um, so, yes, kind of some very strong personal memories in that way, although these days I think there's lots of things. I was very much in awe of him um, in that kind of way, uh, in, in, in my 20s I- in that way. Uh, and and I I guess there's lots of things I'd love to ask him these days uh, if I got the chance again to go and meet him, but I remember being quite almost tongue-tied in some ways, but just very much in awe of the man, despite the kind of personal connection in, in that way in the family relationship. And where did this piece come in Eric Ball's output? Um, it's, it's fairly early on. There are one or two other pieces in the Festival series uh, before this, Uh, But it comes at about 1930 and um, there are a few other variations by one or two other folks before this. But the variation form tends to be, uh, and and even some of the solos that come before this, uh, like um, Eric Leinstein's Happy Day, they're very much more in the traditional variation form of, of that time, sort of Aka Carnival of Venice style. Um, whereby the variations follow those 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 patterns of the way you kind of sort of develop the tune, um, whereas even even in his notes um, in the score notes, Eric actually says that as a simple air varie this piece is hardly true to type as it relies more upon thematic as opposed to melodic development than is usual hence it approximates more nearly to the form known as symphonic variations. He doesn't say that it is a set of symphonic variations in the way that we would understand that now, but it approximates more to that, um, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of work. So it's very much the motivic development. Uh, that was something that we spoke about an awful lot in RSA's The Holy War, where there was a huge amount of motivic development the motivic development is in the work, is in the variations, and it's actually quite clear to see. And so all the variations get uh, developed thematically in that kind of way. And it was a it was a trend that was then followed by other people, um, like Phil Catlinet. Um, another piece of his uh, that has kind of sort of um, was very much of its time but we don't hear much of these days, was his uh, little variations uh, uh, on a sunbeam, um, which is, uh, again, quite a classic piece of this particular era. Eric's Old Wells was in 1930, and Phil Catlinet's uh, sunbeam was uh, 1937.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that insight into the context of the piece. Let's have a delve into the score now and see what we can pick out from here. Listeners, as always, can purchase the score on the Salvation Army Music Index if you wish to listen and follow along at home. So, the start of the piece, quite traditionally, we start with an introduction.
2: It's a very beautiful introduction and uh, the introduction, it's quite clear. It's, um, it simply starts off with, you could almost call it a chorale um, in modern day terms, but it's uh, the, the tune uh, of the original song and uh, it's very, very smooth, very chorale-like and uh, uh, a few bars uh, before it suddenly becomes full band and the sound warms through. There's a really lovely trombone quartet. Um, typical Salvation Army writing in terms of writing for a trombone quartet. Um, And having two first trombone parts there uh, to create that. Um, So you get the original verse of the song and then at letter A, the theme... Uh, the main theme that is developed comes from letter A and is the chorus of the song. The chorus of the song is a little bit different to the, um, uh, to, to the opening, very much that chorale-like opening, but then it's a brighter, uh, a brighter chorus feature, at letter A. There's um, almost very lyrical movements in the bass line um, with a, an interesting octave jump. Um, There's a a counter melody in the uh, solo horn, uh, baritone and euphonium part and um, it it repeats twice and uh, I'm afraid I'm of that generation that know the words of this. The chorus actually says, go back to the old wells where the waters are sweet and that's that's the thematic stuff that is used uh, for development uh, throughout the piece. us to letter B variation 1 what happens here um, this is quite a delicate variation in the cornet line at the beginning you can see how it's related to the thematic uh, part letter A based around, um, it kind of moves around the main notes of the theme, the F uh, up to the C, the D the A, the C and some of the, some of the intervals are there but it's, it's, it's a very, very delicate theme and the, there's quite a lot of imitation and, and I suppose this is the kind of unusual bit in that you look at the imitation and the imitation is actually in the basis, the E-flat and the B-flat basis, The um, semi-quaver delicate melodic line of the cornet and the soprano at the beginning is then taken up by, by, by the tubers and every couple of bars they imitate each other. And and my guess is, at its time, that would have been quite a challenge and would have been quite different in concept and sound. It's also one of those interesting things, I think, for us today, because I think... It's these kind of things that makes the piece quite a classically orientated piece. And um, having looked at it and and having used it a number of times um, from a performance point of view, there's almost a classical feel to it whereby it needs a very delicate and lightness of touch. So whereas at the end of this first variation it's marked forte, it's not a heavy forte and needs a lot of delicacy and refinement, I think, to try and bring this kind of music off. Um, and, and that's what happens through letter A. That imitation goes right through and, and repeats. And um, from a performance point of view, there's a very interesting feature at the end of this uh, variation, just before letter C, where there's a, a bass line that just moves down the tonic, the fifth and the tonic. And the uh, I've heard numerous performances of this where it becomes very bombastic and, and it kind of loses the refinement and the lightness of touch that goes with it. Because it's 14, it's got some staccato and some accents marked on it. It ends up being kind of sort of beaten into the ground, <laughs> is how you hear that. In a way the the variation is very lightly scored. It, it, they're just alternating groups uh, in terms of the way they answer each other. Um, and there's a real clarity in, in the composition in terms of its style and the way that it's written. You can hear, um, you can very easily hear the motivic development, uh, but it's a very light, bright variation. And from light and bright, we change
0: the mood quite substantially in letter C for variation too.
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting one um, in that um, he takes... We get a we get a four bar phrase, and, and again, it's absolutely clear where it comes from. If you look at the end of the tune in the forte uh, section, at letter A at the end of the tune, where you have the descending figure deem, bum, bum ba ba he turns that 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 motive into a ground bass. And uses that. tam, pim, And that tune b- becomes that. And it does become a ground bass um, for people who are kind of uh, wanting to know what your ground bass is. You've only got to think of the ground bass that always occurs to me is Dido's Lament, uh, Purcell's Dido's Lament, where the uh, the harmony and the music keeps moving around that ground bass that keeps chugging along underneath. And um, the ground base repeats uh, four times in the opening section. Various uh, different scoring, various lines uh, that come above it and that decorate it and amplify it. Um, and and, and it, it moves up through the scoring. It's a beautiful little phrase that he keeps using. And for the second half of the section, the ground bass is inverted. It's turned upside down and moves the opposite way. The inversion of the ground bass starts in the upper parts with a pedal note, uh, letter D, and then gradually moves down. It moves from the solo cornet down into the horn and the baritone, down into the euphonium and the trombone, and then the inversion uh, finishes off uh, with the basses finally moving. There's a beautiful arch in terms of the way the the scoring works through there the climactic point at letter d when i say climactic i mean in terms of the scoring in terms of the volume it's actually uh, it's a very very quiet part uh, of the music there's quite a reticence and quite a delicacy again to the way uh, this works so you can easily see the theme but the whole structure of it is quite beautiful as well as, uh, as having a, a lovely kind of overall cohesive structure in terms of the way that it works.
0: And taking us into letter E, the music dies away to end the second variation and takes us into this renewed energy and vigour of variation
2: three. Variation three, it's a joyous variation, and... Um, if anybody wants to look at the score notes, um, the score notes are by Eric Ball, which is always very helpful. And in that way, it's very clear as to what he's saying and uh, what he wants. Uh, he says an almost, almost boisterous uh, spirit, and and we have the thematic references. And it, it's actually, I, I think this is almost a dance-like variation. And that's what after after the. Um, uh, after the ground bass which is a very serious, um, very serious and quiet variation, this becomes very dance-like and you get the motivic elements and again it's based around the scalic figure of the tune and the intervals going from the fifth to the third and then back up to the sixth, back to the third uh, of the scale and ending on the fifth. It's quite compressed here into in its 6-8 rhythm and works over a two bar phrase Um, and as it as it as it goes through into letter F he takes that two bar phrase and compresses it even more and just uses the scalic figures and splits it up and then inverts some of those things. in terms of the way he actually uses the material and the way that it works and the way that it's split between the parts and, and, and the way the thematic figures are, are used between the voices at letter F. It's, it's very clear and it, it, it's, it's, it's really good. And again, I think this is a movement that doesn't have to be forced too much stylistically in terms of, of its playing, the kind of lightness. Um, it's got 40, 40 crescendos, but if, if you make those too bombastic, it, it destroys the spirit uh, of the music again.
0: Thank you, Howard. The second part of that analysis will be released in next month's episode. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages to keep up to date with the most recent releases. Now, settle back. Slip on some shades, slap on the sun cream, for it's time to voyage to Arid Island Album. My guest today is Howard Elliott. Well Howard, thank you ever so much for joining us for this episode's Arid Island Albums. First of all, are you keeping well?
3: Yes, thank you, Matthew. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be here and I'm
0: doing fine, thanks. Excellent stuff. Thank you for giving up your time to join us. So I've got a few questions just to get to know you a little bit better before we ask the all-important Arid Island album question. First of all, can you tell us a bit about your day job?
3: I work in IT and um, we, a contract I'm currently on, uh, we do the support of the IT for the home office. So, um, yeah, last couple of years I've been doing that from home, but normally I find my time in uh,
0: central Croydon doing that. And is the solution to all technical problems turning it off and on again? Of course it is. We all know that. Great. I'm glad we've got that established. (laughs) And uh, you're a Salvationist at the Bromley Corps as well. That's right. How long have you been at Bromley Corps? Oh, a good uh,
3: 30 years, I guess. A long time. Um, Yeah, I started off uh, my early years. I was born and brought up at Liverpool, Walton Court. Uh, Moved down uh, in the 80s, got married and settled at
0: uh, Bromley. Fantastic stuff. Would it be fair to say that you're a bit of a bando as well?
3: I suppose so, yes. I was songster leader for a long time. 20 years in all, uh, two stints, but yeah, always been very keen on my
0: bands. Fantastic. And it's been great over the last few months to have you joined with the ISB and the Household Troops for a couple of weekends away. Um, I think the all-important question that people would like to know is, what mouthpiece do you use?
3: What mouthpiece do I use? I use the bog-standard Vincent Burke one that came with the uh, trombone, to be quite honest. It's a six and a half, I think. Um, I sometimes think I ought to experiment a little, but no, I, I st- I've stuck with the same one for a while now.
0: Well, wish you best with that. And if you do <laughs> experiment, hopefully nothing catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, that brings us on to the all-important question. If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island in the middle of nowhere and could take with you one album, what would that album be and why?
3: Right. Now, I get quite a bit of thought, and I, I started reminiscing, really, and I went back to um, early 80s. And um, a time when um, I really sort of got into listening to uh, bands. And the reason for that was probably listening to Enfield Citadel Band under Bandmaster James Williams. So there are a few of their recordings around that time that really uh, piqued my interest. Um, The one I've gone for uh, is the 1984 Kaleidoscope album which I know a lot of people love. I mean, there were a couple of other contenders. There was My Strength, My Tower and Quintessence, that also great, great, um, great, great albums and really sort of showed the band for what it was at the time, a really great core band. Uh, So I've gone for Kaleidoscope.
0: Excellent. And have you got a favourite track from that album?
3: Well, funnily enough, having listened to it again in preparation for this, Uh, At the time, it was always the title track, Kaleidoscope, because it was just such an exciting arrangement and brilliantly, brilliantly played. But having listened to the whole album again, I I now sort of would say that uh, it's Resurgum, which concludes the the tracks. Um, The playing on there is just absolutely sublime. And I suppose with uh, the increased years of maturity, I've uh, appreciated more the playing uh, of, of uh, Eric Ball's masterpiece, and I think I, I would I'd be struggling to find a better performance of uh, of Resurgam than that.
0: Fantastic! That's absolutely brilliant and a great choice of album. There, thank you ever so much, Howard, for your time and joining us today. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Howard, for your time and a great choice of album. We'd love to hear from our listeners in the future. So if you'd like to be featured on our Island album then please do get in contact with us now it's time to bring Trevor back and sit him in the very hot seat for band Mastermind) <laughs> So this brings us to our segment that we like to call band Mastermind, and I'm once again delighted to be joined by Trevor Davis Trevor, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Oh yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, It so much enthusiasm So just to remind our listeners at home you'll have one minute and thirty seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as you can If you don't know, you can always say pass and uh, we'll see how we get on so, without further ado, your time starts now. Who wrote the march Brazil seventy five? Pass. Eric Ball's Rosergam is based around a text from which book of the Apocrypha? Mm.
1: Pass. I know. I know it. Pass.
0: <laughs> no worries. Uh, what is the only recording by the ISB to be released on LP, cassette, and CD? Pass. In what year was William Himes' first publication?
1: 1960? Not far off. How many
0: works by Dean Goffin are published in the Unity series? Three. So, so close. Triumph of Faith by Arch R. Wiggins is a biography of which Salvationist composer?
1: Bramham Coles.
0: Again, very, very close. How many siblings did Eric Ball have? Two. Uh, Incorrect, I'm afraid. (laughs) Norman Bearcroft was once part of which musical military regiment famous for its gold knee length coats and jockey hats? Household troops. Very, very close. <laughs> we'll come on to that. <laughs> In what year did Boozy and Hawks and the Salvation Army Instrument Manufacturers decide to go from uh, making high-pitched instruments to low-pitched instruments? Ah,
1: oh, nineteen sixty-five.
0: Correct. In what year was Eric Ball's first publication?
1: 1929.
0: Again, very, very close, and I'm afraid that brings us to the end of our time. So I'll just go through the answers to the ones that you didn't get, and uh, I'll let you kick yourself for a few of them. (laughs) So who wrote The Brazil 75? It was Len Ballantyne. Resurgum is based around the book, the, the, book wisdom of of, wisdom. the Wisdom of Solomon. There we go. Maybe we can give you a, a half point for now <laughs> <enough. laughs> uh, The only recording by the ISB to be released on LP, cassette, and CD is Goldcrest. Oh. Uh, you were very close for the year of William Palmer's first publication. It was 1971. Oh. I believe that would be The Witness. You were super close with how many Dick Goffin works are published in the Unity series. You said three, but there's two. Two. So Shepard maybe there's one that we don't know. No, the
1: Unity series, yeah. Triumph of
0: Faith by Arch R. Wiggins is a biography of George Marshall. Oh, dear. Um, how many siblings did Eric Ball have, I asked you. The answer apparently is 15. I hope that's right. <laughs> uh, Norman Bearcroft, the musical military regiment he was part of, famous for their golden-length coats and jockey hats, the State Trumpeters. Ah, oh, that's right. So very, very close, and I think it was. his day fun.
1: job was in one of the Horse Guards, wasn't it? Yeah. So I don't know which one.
0: I reckon we can probably give you a half a yeah. point for that. The final question was: What year was Eric Ball's first publication? It was actually 1922. So that
3: gives you a grand total of
0: one and a half. (laughs) And I have to say, not a bad score for that mastermind at all. But they all get the same question. Not all the same, no, so we'll say these were harder than normal. (laughs) (laughs) Great, thanks again. Just an old man. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, then feel free to leave us a review. Many thanks to Trevor, Howard and Howard for making time in your busy schedules to speak with us and to share your stories and your thoughts. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for the tremendous work that you do in the background to make Fully Scored happen. Thank you also to the metaphorical squirrels that are the band nerds for gathering and storing all the juicy nuts that are band mastermind trivia questions. And thank you to you, our listener, If you've made it this far to episode 30, you must have the patience of saints. So thank you for sticking around. Goodbye, and God bless.